What number is this, Chip? Episode 57. An interview with James Frawley. The Monkey's Color Cast commentary for the episode Too Many Girls. And the Monkey's News Keeps On Coming and more. <laughs> okay, don't, mean, don't get excited, man. It's because I'm short. I know. You're listening to Zilch, a monkey's podcast. Podcast full of monkeys, zilch. Glad to see you once again. Exciting times in the monkeys world. Today I'm joined by Jeff Garinger. Hey, hey, everybody. Melanie Mitchell. Hello. And Mark T from Monkeys Live Almanac. Hello, everyone. You know, I find it hard to believe as a monkeys fan that there are people out there who maybe haven't ever been to monkeyslivealmanac.com. It's 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 a really impressive website. Would you tell us about it? Well, thanks, Ken. Uh, sure. I started the website in 2011, and it was made up of originally just uh, summaries of the tours the monkeys had completed from the 1960s through, well, I guess through the early 2000s, because I first composed everything in early in 2001, I think. And um, after seeing the monkeys on their 45th anniversary tour, I decided. Uh, to find a place for it on the web, and I put it up, and um, it was met with a lot of uh, kind remarks and comments, and it's just sort of taken off from there. And it's really cool because I know that I use it. I'm pretty sure Melanie uses it, and I'm sure Jeff uses it as well. We, but it's a, it's, it's really a tremendous resource because you can pretty much find things about every year, every tour, and it's filled with full of photographs of of the guys and what was going on. Melanie, what are your thoughts on Monkey's Live Almanac? Well, I check it almost every day because I know that Mark is constantly updating it, and that's one of the things I really appreciate about it is that, for for me, it's been my go-to resource for updates and news. But also, it is incredibly well organized. It's got a really great index that will take you pretty much to whatever information you're looking for. I love the the song lists from the concerts going back to the 60s. And you know what I love about it, too, is you can really tell how much love Mark puts in this site. It it takes a lot of work to do what he does. And, Mark, you do it so quickly. You know, you'll hear a story, and you go to your website, and you've already got it up. I mean, hats off to you for the love that you put into this. The man never rests. He he never sleeps. (laughs) I do appreciate it. It's funny, with the blog, when I first started the website, I, I merely used the blog as a way to say, hey, I updated the 1969 tour page with this information, that photo, uh, or something like that. But when the monkeys went back on the road after Davey passed, I started to use the blog more often and keep up with you know announcements about the tour. And then I started to think, I have all of these things in my closet in boxes, magazines, you know, old fan club newsletters, just general memorabilia. And I, they've been sitting in boxes for, for years now. So I thought, why not? use the blog as a way to show it off and let other fans enjoy it. And it's cool because we're going to start to work a little bit more in tandem and promote one another and help one another out. 
as uh, Zilch and Monkey's Live Almanac moves on into the future. In the year of the monkeys. The year of the monkeys. So we're just glad to have you on board, Mark. Thanks, Ken. You guys want to take a dive into the Zilch mailbag? Great. All right, here we go. It's going to be crowded. (laughs) P.O. Box 9847. Mark T. from Monkey's Live Almanac. Would you care to read our Zilch fan mail today? Sure. This letter comes from Amy Jones, and she writes, I just want to say a big thank you to all of you at Zilch. When I found your podcast, it was like, for lack of a better analogy, Gonzo in Muppets from Space, learning that there were others of his kind. It's so awesome to hear other real-life people making references to head or certain episodes, or elephant parts, or anything else monkeys-related. I've loved the monkeys since I was about nine, and I think it's fair to say that I love every one of them like family. It sounds like the rest of you feel the same way. So, again, I'm grateful to you at Zilch for being a thing. I'm also grateful to the monkeys for this awesome year with which they're blessing us. They don't have to do it, but they are, and it sounds like they are having an awesome time doing so. I can't wait to see them live in concert in June, and my little girls are just as excited. Thank you, Zilch. Thank you, monkeys. Thank you, monkey-loving friends. It's nice to be with you. That's so cool. That's so cool. <sighs> Great. You know, there, there's not a month or a week that, that goes by that we don't hear from somebody, whether it's on our email or on our Twitter uh, at Zilchcast or or on the Facebook page where people say, I thought I was alone until I found you guys. <laughs> and it just is really neat to, to see how far the monkey's love has went around the world because there are people from, you know, Paris, Japan, and Uruguay. <laughs> There's someone listening out there in Uruguay. Hello. I'm glad that you came our way and we're going Uruguay. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm glad you're listening. But, it, <laughs> but, but Thank it, you, Melanie. I was afraid to cut in. <laughs> but it's just so cool, you know. Thank you for the feedback, Amy. We hope you get to hear this, and we're just glad that everybody's out there. And, and we, we all need one another, right, guys? That's right. Absolutely. Peace and love, peace and love. And, you know, it's cool because she mentioned the Muppets in that message and today on our show we have an interview with somebody who worked with the muppets as a matter of fact he directed the muppet movie jeff would you like to tell us who that is it's james frawley who of course directed half of the monkeys television episodes and was really instrumental in sculpting the characters that we came to know and love so we look forward to hearing that later in the episode and today we're doing a color cast commentary for what Monkeys TV episode, Melanie? Too Many Girls. These, the scandalous Too Many Girls with the... <laughs> Unfortunately, we don't have the um, full-body bikini version of Too Many Girls yet. Uh, still waiting for the um, Blu-ray to arrive, but uh, we did our best with the censored version. And fans hang in there because during the interview with Jim Frawley, he talked specifically about the scandalous episode and what they did at the time and i think you want to hang around for that ken in radio that's called a tease yes it is and it's it's synchronicity which has nothing to do with the police (laughs) album from the 80s but it is still synchronicity so let's let's talk a little bit about the monkey news monkeys news monkeys news it's a great time to be a monkeys fan an interview with michael nesmith from a few years ago was rebroadcast on npr's world cafe radio program 
And, in a surprise to just about everybody, a recording of me and Magdalena from the Monkees' forthcoming album Good Times was part of their playlist. Eventually it made its way to YouTube and quickly spread like wildfire on social media. Michael Nesmith took to Facebook to comment on the song written by Ben Giebert of Death Cab for Cutie and also posted a link to the unofficial YouTube upload. Michael Nesmith wrote, Just up the road a piece I can see the top of Ben Gibbert's head and all the pretty thoughts in this light he's under. Here he comes, walking down the street. And he posted a YouTube clip of the track Mia Magdalena. Michael Nesmith later took the video down with a very funny post. And according to Michael, it looks like we'll have an official release of Mia Magdalena on May 16th. So stay tuned for that. I personally loved the song Me and Magdalena. It, it really was different than the other preceding two singles. And it was a song about death, life, and love, and what possibly may come after it. And it was, it was beautiful to hear Mike and Mickey harmonizing on it. And I really think this is going to be an amazing album. Rhino also put up this very cool billboard on the side of their building, which had the cover of Good Times with the huge monkey logos and all the modern-day songwriters on it. And, and it's great to see Rhino putting all this attention and money into the Year of the Monkeys, into promotion during this, the Year of the Monkeys. John Hughes posted on the Zilch Facebook page that She Makes Me Laugh debuts this week at number 28 on... The Alternative Radio Chart? Just behind the new single by a band called M83. I'm going to play a little bit of them so you can see what the competition is like for the monkeys today. very bizarre. A lot of people don't even know what alternative radio is. And alternative radio used to be college radio, basically. Anything that wasn't played on Top 40 or mainstream rock and radio, that's what alternative music was. So, Jeff, how would you describe alternative radio? Well, it, it certainly isn't the monkeys. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, alternative radio is it, it's kind of an offshoot of what um, college radio was. It's kind of artists that are not exactly pop oriented that you you know you wouldn't see them you know filling a stadium but have artists and fans just the same if you look at at uh, talk shows on television when letterman was up and colbert and and even jimmy fallon a lot of the musical acts that they present are alternative mm-hmm. and so that's what made this show up of the monkeys at number 28 kind of bizarre I was reminded of a story that Mickey Dolenz likes to tell when Boyce and Hart came to him back in 1966 and told him that Last Train to Clarksville was um, on the charts on Cashbox. And he responded, wow, that's great. What's what's Cashbox? (laughs) (laughs) But for the single, this is going to be the problem of where does it fit? Where does where does radio embrace it? Is it going to be in the top, you know, the top 100 next to Drake and Rihanna? No. Um, is it going to be to adult contemporary stations that play Adele? No. And so that's the problem. You know, um, hit singles are a young person's game. And as much as we love this single, our appreciation needs to come when the actual album comes out because then 
it's no holds barred and it doesn't have to fall into any one category and you don't have to scan serious trying to find it you know it will make a difference when they actually go out and promote the album i have to agree with jeff that the album will be hopefully the thing that charts highly think about it with paul mccartney or other classic rock artists uh whether it be tom petty and you can name them all uh even a pearl jam look at you too they can't get a top 10 hit in the modern uh day despite you know the quality of these artists and their music as Jeff said, radio is a young person's game. I was thinking back to the Big Boss radio episode of Zilch, and you all counted down the top hits of 1966. Back then, there was just one chart, correct? There right. weren't so many. If I'm not mistaken, the top hit of 1966 was not exactly a pop tune. Was right. it Winchester it? Cathedral? No, that was 67. I think it was the, the Ballad of the, Green, the Green Beret. Ah, uh, by Barry Sadler, yeah. Yeah, so I'll talk about your alternative music. <laughs> but it's just funny that that's that's the problem that any artist would have now and and you know Mark made a good point about how many artists have actually tried to put out new recordings and except for the bass that love them the singles just don't matter unfortunately funny as we are actually recording this I just looked up at the Zilch Facebook page and proud Zilcher Cindy Large posted this photo seven minutes ago so this just totally happened on Sirius XM I'm blasting it with the windows down and sing along with my car and on her Sirius <laughs> she's got a picture of her dashboard and on her Sirius it says the monkeys she makes me laugh on channel 30 the loft Ken, so. it's so funny because I refreshed just five minutes ago the page that I had up, and there it showed up playing at 1.14 p.m. <laughs> and while so that's, that's great, I, I keep hearing people thinking, you know, I need to call our local radio station, demand that they play the Monkey's new single. And, you know, those days are long gone. You know, all, all music by radio stations, for the most part, 99% of them, is all done corporately with research and done out of New York, and they just can't play a song because you call them up and ask them for it. So Unless you find some sort of small station that's still not corporately owned, but that's rarer and rarer nowadays. Very much so. I know but, that Ghost, Ghosty played it on WFDU. Mm-hmm. So it's it's getting out there, but the the big challenge is for us as fans who want to promote the the song, and, and really what Rhino's trying to promote is not just a single, but the the whole album. They they want to put this in front of as many eyes and ears as possible. That's really the challenge, and probably the greatest promotion will be social media, uh, YouTube, and talk shows, or like for example, if they were to go on the Today Show or something like that. Things like the XM Sirius Town Hall as well. And that's really how your heritage acts have been making any headway at all. So we look forward to see what happens. But yeah, the, the, the days of calling up your local station, it's, it's really difficult because, you know, if you call up and they say, hey, <laughs> we're an oldie station and this is a new song, it doesn't matter that it's from somebody from back in the old days. You, it's very rare that they will play, they will cut into their programming and say, hey, here's the new Paul McCartney song. Play. Especially for a radio station. Yeah. If, it's, if it doesn't fit exactly their format, there's no way they're going to play it. I'm optimistic, though, for a chart placement for the album, a high chart placement. Ken, like you said, the Heritage Acts today, that is where they can make a dent in the chart. I referenced Tom Petty earlier. He had, I think, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers' last album debuted at number one, and I think it was their first number one album. So I thought that was interesting. And last year, James Taylor had his first number one album. Now, I don't know what he did to get to, to that, 
whether it was just sales or whether there was concert tie-ins, but that was his very first number one album. And it is so weird because just right now, as we're talking, from thestranger.com, just put up a thing, the, the name of the article is The Monkeys Plus XTC, You Bring the Summer, or Finally Some Good News. And it's really neat to see all this alternative press that is focusing on the new Monkeys record because of people like Rivers Cuomo and Andrew Partridge and you know everybody that's that's part of it so it's it's almost a, a two-prong attack from Rhino where they're doing here is this new spin on the Monkeys but here's the classic Monkeys doing the old stuff as you know the the new and the old by bringing in Harry Nielsen tracks and so on and so forth. So it's 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 going to be interesting to see how this pans out. Mm-hmm. And it's a credit to the timelessness, if you will, of the monkeys. Uh, they continue to be discovered by new generations. Clearly, uh, the songwriters that have contributed to good times perhaps saw the television show you know, on MTV in the 80s, like a Rivers Cuomo or a Ben Gibbard, or maybe a little earlier. And they had that connection, that tie with the monkeys that never forgot it. Yeah. It's kind of paid off in a way for the monkeys. Andy Partridge posted on Twitter a couple of days ago, Hey, hey, I'm almost a monkey. If you haven't heard it, you can hear You Bring the Summer, Boyhood Heroes Singing My Song. And that pretty much sums it up right there, right, Melanie? Oh, God. That just sends me shivers down my spine. Yeah. For all of us that grew up with those jangly guitars, this is kind of a dream come true for the folks who saw the Monkees TV show or maybe just heard those jangly guitars and those very cool songs, and this is finally a dream come true for them. So, well, you know, I had cool. a fun event with my wife over this. I She's a dancer, and I, I showed her the clip that came out of England of all the girls in bikinis dancing to Here Come, you know. Oh, God. And I, I asked the question, I said, is, is this new or is this you know, stock footage, or have they, you know, remounted something that looks like it? And she says, no, but you can tell it's old because the body types are different. Yeah. She assumed that song was from 1966. Oh, wow. About she that. didn't clue in that it was from the new album. To so her, that's how well John song. Hughes and Schlesinger and Andrew and everyone did on this album. Wow, wow, wow. But, but to be fair, from what I understand, the, the dancers are not current. That's an old... An yeah, old television right. clip it's an too. old clip, but it's not '60s old. It's like '80s old or yeah. '90s old. By the way, did you guys see where Mike posted that clip yeah, on God. Facebook? <laughs> Said he couldn't recognize Peter. <laughs> well, it's a totally different <laughs> body type, dude. that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, he said, "I hope they're going to do that on the tour." <laughs> yeah, didn't he also say something like, "I I might have to go see them this summer." <laughs> right. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe that'll be on the screen behind them. <laughs> super well, the last po- time he snuck into a Monkees concert to watch it from the seats was in in Dallas back in 1986. Yeah, right, I'm going to be at the show in Dallas, so maybe I'll see him there. <laughs> That'd be a trip. And while we're talking about good times and good things, we'd like to wish the drummer, the the heartbeat of the touring monkeys, Rich Dart, a happy birthday. He's a May baby, and, and we're just glad that you're doing what you're doing, Rich. We all love you. So, happy birthday, Very, brother. Happy New Year, Rich. Yeah. yeah, happy New Year. <laughs> well, check out this message for something you should be checking out. I'm Brett Velez. My new book, A Little Bit Me, A Little Bit You, The Monkeys from a Fan's Perspective, chronicles my experiences with the monkeys from the 1960s into today, along with stories by other fans and how the monkeys touched our lives. A Little Bit Me, A Little Bit You 
The Monkeys from a Fan's Perspective by Fred Velez, available on Amazon.com, CreateSpace.com, Smashwords.com, Apple iBooks, Barnes & Noble Nook, and other print and ebook outlets. And we encourage everyone to pick up Fred Velez's book. It's, it's lots of fun, and it, it, it really is from a fan's perspective. You should check it out. So, today we have James Frawley on the show, and let's talk about how this came to be and the importance of James Frawley in the monkey's story. Let's turn it over to Jeff Geringer. How did you get this done? Because you sneaky person, you. As I was setting an interview up, right as soon as I, like, got his contact information and someone said he's expecting a call from you you pm me and said hey i just interviewed james frawley <laughs> i myself am deeply jealous <laughs> she's been waiting to use that line so how did this come to be jeff you know i i am just such an admirer of his and it also kind of falls into a pet peeve that i've had about the monkeys you know the, the 60s in the tv series was like 80 to 85 percent comedy story and the guys messing around and 15% music yet since 1970 the majority 90-95% of all the activities of the monkeys have been strictly music oriented and I just never thought that James Foley got his due for what he did so I I tracked him down he lives out in the desert in San Bernardino Riverside area in California you think it's only like he lives in a cave no no it's, no, it's beautiful that's <laughs> oh, where all the desert. celebrities oh no could never afford to live there, so hats off to the man. And he's he's retired and enjoying his life and, and really had fun thinking back over the memories of, of his time with the monkeys. And with uh, too many girls coming up on the color commentary today, he's going to tell a story about what actually happened when the show aired in 1967. That's a little different than the story that we've heard, so hang around for that. I just wanted to follow up on something you said earlier that um, he directed half of their episodes, and actually it was 32 out of 58, so it's slightly wow. more than half. Oh, very I, good. I would say substantially more than half. I mean, he was pretty much constantly around. Also, the the fact that he taught them how to do improv. You know, the idea of him going into a, an empty soundstage with the four of them for, I think it was upwards of six weeks, just to teach them to relax and and explore their comedy without having to rely on being told what to do it right. really shows in, in not just the TV show but their live appearances, their radio station takeovers and stuff like that wonderful I, idea Jeff to have the interview with Jim, I have an old interview with Jim Frawley posted on my website that was conducted by Paris Stockdiaris and John DeMeo who did the headquarters radio program out of New York in the late 80s and it's a fascinating listen uh, so I really look forward to the updated interview yeah, he's got great stories and interesting that you mentioned that, Mark, because I think we could announce that we're going to kind of repurpose some of those interviews yes. and use them on Zilch. And we Absolutely. will reframe them and make them part of Zilch and kind of we, we, we thank them for doing what we're doing now. And it's, it's great to follow in their wonderful footsteps. Wow. That's wonderful news. I'm so happy to hear that be happy to share them and and really it's all uh, a big thanks to paris who shared you know all of his old files and archives with me a couple of years ago it's wonderful it's just really cool that we're all part of this big community and we really are trying to continue the work that maggie mcmanus and everybody else that's been part of monkey's fandom has been doing all these years and we're just trying to keep that going and this is the new this is the new audio fanzine if you will so it's very cool 
So without further ado, here's Jeff Geringer's interview with director James Frawley. 2016, the 50th anniversary of the Monkees. You know, many fans look at your input with the guys as so important that you could be known as the fifth monkey. You've amazed so much in those 50 years later. Why do you think there's so such an interest in the television show? Well, first of all, the fact that it's 50 years just blows my mind. I mean, <laughs> you know, someone wrote an article down here recently in a local paper, a very good interview with me, and they said, you know, 50 years of directing. And I went, wait, he made a mistake. He must have meant 40. You know, so 50 years already blows my mind. I mean, that's a long time. Uh, luckily, I'm well. Uh, we've lost Davy, uh, which was a, a very sad event, of course, for everybody. Of course. Uh, and it feels like yesterday. I mean, I can remember moments uh, as if they were yesterday. It, uh, it had such a profound effect on me. It was a, a great event in my life. It was, I guess, the turning point in my career. Because I was an actor, really, primarily, and a still photographer. And I made some short films in New York. Uh, and I came out to California with an improvisational theater group called The Premise. Uh, which were quite successful in New York. We won Obies off-Broadway and a uh, very talented political satire. And Buck Henry was in that group as too, wasn't Buck he? Buck Henry was there, that's right. Joan Darling, Ted Flicker, uh, Tom Aldridge, who's passed. Uh, and we were at the Ivar Theater in Hollywood. For Before it was a strip club. What? Before it was a strip club. You've done your research, haven't you? <laughs> Just lived here a long time. Oh, I see. Good. And uh, two young, uh, talented producers came to see the show and were amused by my work because I was kind of a, a, a comic actor doing a lot of different characters uh, and asked to have dinner with me, which I, of course, uh, accepted. And we went to Dan Tanner's, which is a, a really nice restaurant still there, and sat and talked for hours about theater and art and uh, mostly European movies because we both, uh, the three of us, uh, Bert, Bob, and I loved foreign films, uh, Fellini and Truffaut. And, uh, we got to see that there was a lot of things in common that we had. And one, of course, was comedy. We made each other laugh a lot. They had a great sense of humor. And I think I do as well. And uh, because I had done improvisational theater and had also studied uh, at the actor's studio and been in Lee Strasberg's private class, uh, they knew that I had an improvisational background, that I knew a lot about acting as a craft. And so they talked to me about a deal. They said, look, uh, if you work with these four guys for a couple of months and teach them about improvisational acting and about give and take and humor and uh, get them to feel comfortable with themselves and with each other, we'll give you an episode to direct. Well, that was, you know, that was amazing. Sure. I, mean, I had never directed before professionally. I'd made short films. And here was a great deal, you know. And they said, if that goes well, there's more in the offing. So I said, sure, absolutely, great. And they said, terrific. And we shook hands, and they left the restaurant, and I paid the bill. <laughs> uh, well. <laughs> but it was worth it, you know. It was great. And so I did the, uh, the training, we'll call it. You know, it wasn't really training. It wasn't that formal. I was just kind of getting together and the guys finding out what their strong points were, who their personalities were, what they felt like, how they liked each other, didn't like each other. Now, is this when the characters themselves came, you know, Peter being the dummy, and is this well, where this came to... Well, let's not call him dummy. Let's say he was 
innocent shy or limited okay i don't like that word <clears throat> but yeah that each character emerged from the guys themselves from who they were in other words when you're doing episodic television and that's what this ended up being you don't really have time to create a character every day for every shot so you have to really come to the sound stage as yourself ready to work and let your humor your point of view your attitude uh come forth and that's what the guys learned to do sure i uh, feel comfortable with each other it was, it was a great time well you could see it on screen that they were having a great time I've always thought that's one of the high points of the series. Is I mean, they seem so loose and energetic and charismatic beyond belief. Yeah. I mean, we, we were given such freedom uh, by the producers. and uh, Because this had never been done before, nobody had any rules. There was no, you can't do this, you can't do that. So we would go to the beach, you know, with the film crew and dress up in funny costumes. And I'd just say, guys, do a funny walk or roll down the hill or... You know, act silly or carry on. Because we love the Marx Brothers. Uh, we love the Three Stooges. You know, we love the American humor. And this was very American, very out there, you know. Uh, the Beatles were very reserved in that respect. They were, it was English humor, you know. We were American. We were very different. Uh, and we would just have fun, you know. And the day would be over, and they'd say, okay, that's a wrap, and... We'd all get in our cars and, you know, go back to town. And the stuff that we shot was wonderful. It really was. It was so free and loose. And there was no, you know, kind of criticism or uh, nobody standing over your shoulder saying, don't do that, don't do this. It was terrific. And that's really Bert and Bob. They, they were smart enough as producers to, to give the creative people, the writers and the directors, uh, the freedom to be who they were and uh, to have fun and to have a kind of spirit, a, a rebellious spirit. Sure. Once you were hired on to direct several episodes, how did your role change in the nucleus of the monkeys? Well, I was the kind of the director, you know, the monkey director. And I directed every other episode and other directors came in and filled in. And so I was part of the family, you know, and Bob and Bert and I were friends uh, socially and so we hung out together on weekends and spent time at night and enjoyed each other's company and it was a, it was a great feeling it really was and so you never had any problems with the suits from screen gyms coming down and saying that this is you know too crazy too wild no no none that i experienced i mean it could be that bob and bert were uh, were getting hit with some of that stuff but they protected us they really did Wow. Did anything change as far as the way that you filmed once they started uh, an, a very popular recording career? They'd have to apparently leave at 5 o'clock and go to a studio and record. Did you have enough time to complete the episodes that you wanted, or did you make any sacrifices due to their recording commitments? Well, you're always making sacrifices. I mean, you never have enough time. No one does uh, when they're shooting. You know, you always want another day or another hour, or let me get this close up, or wait a minute, I need this. Uh, but I, I didn't feel a pinch that hurt it creatively. You know, I really didn't. The ideas were coming down from the writer's room and from Bob and Bert, and they were, they were good. They were funny. They were fresh. And we were getting a lot of interesting actors, character actors, coming on and playing with us, you know, because it was a, an unusual playground. It was a place where actors could come in and 
play insane characters and uh, be rewarded for it. Once Monkey Mania hit, did you have any you know, funny stories about things fans might have done out on the street or in the studio? Or Yeah. Uh, I mean, we were kind of enclosed. We were on this soundstage, and we were just doing our thing, you know, day after day, and going out on the street or going to the beach. I didn't really have the the sense of how huge these kids that I was working with, these guys that I was working with, my friends, had become. I mean, you know, they were enormous. And that was all happening outside of the realm of Screen Gems. There was the recording booth where they were doing the records. And then I went with them uh, to San Francisco with Bob Rafelson and I and a couple of 16-millimeter cameras. And we were going to shoot a, you know, a short film on this event. Uh, and I was amazed. I mean, you know, 5,000 people filling the Cow Palace, I think it is in San Francisco, mm -hmm. what's it called? Mm -hmm. You know, screaming. I mean, it was, it was Beatlemania all over again, except it was my friends, my guys, <laughs> the, you know, the guys I played with and ate with and had fun with. I didn't realize they were so huge. I don't think they did either. But we, you know, we had worked out a kind of escape a lot of rock groups did this finally, which is they would exit after a number, the lights would go down, and then they would run to the backstage and into a limousine and take off. And then the lights would come back up and there'd be nobody on stage, but at least the audience didn't know that the show was over. Because when the kids started running out into the alley and outside the theater and they saw these limousines taking off, they would you know, kind of attack the limousines. And Bob and I were in the back seat with our cameras, handheld, shooting ourselves, and the kids were climbing over the car, and the car was rocking. It's am it was amazing. <laughs> uh, it was scary, but it was really like, God, what have we created here? And later, that move became to be known as Elvis has left the building. Yes, right, indeed. Yeah. Um, Mr. Frawley, 1966. You can call me Jim. Okay, Jim. One of the 28 shows that you directed, The Royal Flush, won the Emmy as Best Comedy Series and honored you as Best Director. What were your feelings that night? Did you have any clue that you were going to win? None. No, we were the outlaws in town, you know, uh, and we weren't involved with kind of the politics of the Academy. And we were, as I say, just kind of in our soundstage doing our crazy stuff. And we were all there, and it was, it was very exciting. And the tape of it is kind of wonderful, too, because we're at the table with our wives, and when, the, when it came up that we had won, we jumped up and screamed and embraced each other. And I was the first one to get the award, and I started through uh, the room, and uh, Milton Berle grabbed me <laughs> and put his arms around me, because he was kidding. He didn't know what to do with that either. And I got up, and I mean, I've seen the film of my acceptance speech, and... I was like out of my skin, out of my body. I yeah, was, but it was very funny your, your joke about the thanking the four boys. Yeah, that was oh you remember? Yeah, that was kind of off the cuff, uh, but in a way it was true. You know, it was thanking the Marx Brothers, and it was we were high as a kite. It was a fantastic night. It really was. For outstanding directorial achievement in comedy, the nominees are William Asher, Bewitched, Earl. Bellamy, one of our bombs is missing, I spy. James Frawley, Royal Flush, The Monkeys. William Russell, Family Affair. 
Lori Thompson, The Lucy Show. And the winner is... The winner in Hollywood is James Frawley. people. First with two producers, Bert Schneider and Bob Rapelson, who said yes when a lot of producers said maybe, to my wife, who's always there, and to four really funny guys, Harpo, Chico, Groucho, and Zeko. Let me ask you if you can tell me the origin of the famous and now infamous black box on the set. Was that a necessity? Was that just something you did to make it easier for filming? or The which? The black box what had a light for each monkey and then they were needed on the set. They would hang out in this box and then come to the set when you needed them. Oh, it wasn't a box. It was a room. <laughs> we had to keep these four guys together. And they were young and energetic and wild and testosterone and it was all happening you know and they were getting all this applause and all this attention and a lot of young girls and we had to kind of find a way to keep them together so when we were shooting we didn't waste time looking for them because as you say time was uh, precious so they took a uh, huge uh, refrigerator box like from a, a butcher and they brought her on stage, and they painted it black, like you say, and they put the four lights on top for who was wanted and who was inside the box. They air-conditioned it. They put pillows in there. They painted it. They made it really nice. And that was kind of like a clubhouse where the boys hung out between shots, so that at least we knew where they were. <laughs> you know, and if uh, they got some company every once in a while, that was nice, too. Sure. Uh, and that was, yeah, that was the box. I guess you called it the box. Like, it was a room. It was really large enough, you know, to enjoy. Towards the end of the second season, uh, the programs got much more looser. Was that by design, or was that just where the monkeys and you, as the producer and director, were there at the time? How do you mean looser? I mean, they'd reference the script in their hand, they'd recut scenes over. I mean, I think of, of, of episodes where it just wasn't this traditional sitcom. Oh, yeah, well, you know, in those days, you did a lot of episodes a season, per season. Uh, now they do 12, 16. <clears throat> we were doing, I don't know, 30? Almost double the amount. So it was a long work season, and a lot of shows were being made. And we were getting a little impatient with how we were repeating ourselves. I mean, there was one, my, one of my favorite moments is when we start an episode and... Uh, I forget who says it, but I'd probably Mickey. Mickey said, "Hey, come on, Jim. This is absurd. We, we've done a gangster uh, episode three times in a row. We can't do another gangster episode, or three times a season, whatever." And I come on stage, literally walk past the camera onto the set. I said, "Come on, guys. You know we got to go on. We got to shoot this." 
And Mickey says, no, I don't want to shoot this stuff. We've shot this before. We've done gangsters before. I've got to talk to the writers. And he takes the script, the actual script we were using, and he, he exits the room onto the soundstage floor where you see the crew, the makeup table, the camera, me, and he walks all the way across the stage, which was large, to a room walk, walked, a room, he walks across the stage to a room marked writers. Open the door, and there around the table are four ancient Asians sitting at old <laughs> Underwood p uh, typewriters. And they're typing away, and behind them is the guy from... Uh, James Bond, odd job. James Bond, right. right. And he's kind of, you know, seeing that they do their jobs. And Mickey says, yeah, look, come on, guys, we can't do this. You've got to rewrite the episode. And they all go, and they start typing, and he takes the pages, and he walks back into the stage. The camera follows him the whole time. He hands out the pages, and we restart the episode. That's very far-out writing. You know, that's a really, right. really interesting concept to break the fourth wall in such a, an original way. And, you know, that would also keep us excited, because as long as we had new ideas and new actors and new ways of doing the show, we were feeling good. I mean, that's why we didn't do a third season, because we had really, not burned out really, but the creative juices had been uh, drunk. <laughs> Certainly. Yeah. Um, let me ask you, as we're closing here, just a couple of urban myth questions for you. And I apologize about the specificness of this, but That's all right. one of the urban legends is that you were the voice of everyone's favorite character, Mr. Snyder. Was that true? Were you the voice of Mr. Snyder? I have to admit, I don't remember. <laughs> well, you're uncredited so many times as appearances in the episodes. Right. It's, it's hard to keep track of your actual on-screen well, I, I was an actor first, and I was an improvisational actor, a comic actor. Even though I did Broadway with Lawrence Olivier, I also did off-Broadway. And, and so, yeah, it was very comfortable for me to go on stage or go in front of the cameras and, and do a riff, you know, have some fun. Uh, Bob did, too, Rafelson. Uh, so maybe I did that voiceover. I don't remember. I did a lot of voices. No, I'm sure you did. Okay, let me ask the second stupid question. Um, a stupid question. <laughs> don't put yourself down. Okay, in the episode Too Many Girls, that's the episode where Davy is attached to a girl named Fern and her overbearing mother. Uh, there's a scene where the cleavage on the actor playing Fern is blurred away. Was that something you were aware of, the censorship at the time? Oh, this is really... You, you hit on something very interesting. It was very conservative in those days. There's a scene early on where a young girl who's got a crush on Davy uh, comes on with a bikini, and they would not permit us to show a navel, a naked navel on television. Are you ready? So what we did instead of reshooting the sequences, I think it was Bob who came up with the idea, is we had the logo of the, of the network put over her no, over her navel <laughs> so everywhere she went she was covered i mean they do it now with you know bare ass or, or bare breasts with a kind of out of focus thing but we did it first we did it with that little logo the floating logo in order to get approval wow outstanding yeah 
Well, Jim, I have to tell you, Andy Monkey's fan owes you a tremendous debt for your direction and, and expertise that you brought to the series. And celebrating its 50th anniversary, you're the one person we wanted to talk to. So thank you oh, so much. I'm really flattered. That's really great. It was the most fun I ever had. And, you know, I had a really long and wonderful career and did great work with great people. But I think back now, 50 years, I mean, that was really incredible. I mean, you can't do any better. You know, they were paying me large sums of money to have a great deal of fun. And I love the boys, and I have great memories, and uh, hopefully people still respond, and they seem to, because the kind of optimism in the work that we did then. And uh, I think people need that today, particularly today. Outstanding. Well, thank you for your kindness, sir. I appreciate it so much. Well, you're very respectful. I really appreciate that. Thank you. Oh, wow, Jeff. That was an amazing interview. Thank you so much for doing that. Uh, thanks to Jim Frawley for spending time with us. He, he loves the monkeys. He has great admiration for them. And uh, honestly, I was like you, thinking, oh, God, it's another person bugging me about the monkeys again. But he couldn't have been more charming and, and outgoing with his stories. And you know, put me in my place a couple times. So he, he he did a great job. I like to, whenever I, I mention him, I sometimes point out that he's the person who taught the monkeys to do improv and taught Kermit how to ride a bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know about you all, but I personally love that movie. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, I told him that off the air, that, you know, the ending of that movie continues to bring a lump to my throat. It's just spectacular. The music and the messages are one of my favorite things. And a lot of us monkey fans, we may not uh, all get to meet somewhere, but there's the, the great phrase from the song, I'm going to go back there someday, where it says, there's not a word yet for old friends who've just met. Sun rises, night falls, sometimes the sky calms. Is that a song there?
it's just a beautiful, fun f film, and I'm glad that he had something to do with it because, boy, it's just excellent. Bravo. There's a, there's a wonderful photograph of him when he was working on the Muppet movie, posing with a Muppet that was made in his likeness. <laughs> I'll post it on the Facebook page. It's one of my favorite photos of him. Excellent. Because the, the Muppet really does look like him. <laughs> <laughs> on today's Color Cast Commentary... We're doing the episode Too Many Girls, and in that episode, Michael Nesmith does something kind of cool in this, and Melanie, would you like to talk about it? I think it's 40 of the funniest seconds of television I've ever seen. <laughs> it's Mike Nesmith's insanely awful rendition of the song Different Drum, pretending to be Billy Roy Hodstetter, country music uh, wannabe in the uh, amateur hour. And what's amazing about that performance is that the song was not yet known. Um, so the audience watching in, it, back in 1966 would not have recognized the song as he sang it. It would have just sounded like a bunch of random phrases with mm -hmm. barely any tune attached to it at all, sung way too fast, with a bridge that consisted of don't give me, don't give me, don't give me, don't give me. Our next contestant on your TV amateur hour is a very gifted folk singer. And here he is, Billy Roy Hostetter. Thank you very much, Mr. Hag. You know, I travel to the beat of a different drum cage. Tell by the way I run every time you make eyes at me. Cry at home and say we'll work out, but honey child, I've got my doubts you can't see the forest for the trees. when we watch it we know the song right we see what it is that he's parodying but it, it would have been a completely different experience for the original audience so um i when uh, ken when you asked yesterday you know we need a, a song to put in in this episode i immediately said oh let's please have naz singing different drum and here's real. uh billy roy hostetter himself michael nesmith from 2010 doing a live version of different drum. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <clears throat> One of the early ones I didn't sing. Well, you and I travel to the beat of a different drum. Can't you tell by the way I run? Every time you make eyes at me You cry, you moan, you say it'll work out But honey child, I got my doubts You can't see the forest for the trees and Don't get me wrong, it's not that I knock it It's just that I'm not in the market for a girl who wants to love only me and I'm not saying that you're not pretty No, all I'm saying's I'm not ready For any person, place, or thing To try and pull the reins in on me 
Well, I feel pretty sure you'll find you a man who'll take a lot more than I ever could or can, and you'll settle down with him, and I know that you'll be happy. Crying and grieving We'll both live a lot longer If you live without me If you live without me Oh, if you live without me With apologies and a special thanks to Linda And a fond good night to y'all And there's Billy Roy Hostetter himself. <laughs> I'm sorry, that song always cracks me up, even when he does it straight. Yeah, well, and it's neat how he does it there, too, because he does it different than, like, the Linda Ronstadt version, because it's almost like a conversation that he's having with someone, you know, and it's, it's interesting to hear how he does that, how he delivers well, there's, it. There's a whole extra verse that kind of adds a little more context to yeah. the story. That he's telling. Yeah. That particular performance is from, as you said, 2010, but it was yeah. a song that he did in Movies of the Mind as well. Okay. I've always tried to imagine what a version of Different Drum would have sounded like on Headquarters, perhaps. You know, it's weird. I wonder if you would have done Different Drum and you didn't have Mike sing the lead, which monkey would you have sing lead on a version of, the, of Different Drum from, like, let's say, the Headquarters session? Well, my, first, Peter. My, fir- my first inclination would be to go with Mickey, but then I started to think about Davey. Because so, Davey did such a wonderful job uh, singing Nine Times Blue oh version on the You're Birds right. Deluxe. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Melanie? What? I have trouble getting his own voice out of the way, so I would say he would, he would save that vocal for himself. Hmm. Well, I, I, think, I think I would go with Mickey probably getting it. It would be interesting to hear that song produced back in the 60s at that time. Well, Mark, since this is your first time as we're doing a color cast commentary, would you like to use the Zilch remote and press the buttons and get it get the segment going? This is great. I'm looking forward to hearing this. Press the button, Mark. Oh, I'm sorry. Click. <laughs> I think I need Jim Frawley to help me out here. <laughs> Guys, you know what? It's 7.36.30 Central Time. It's time for the monkeys. I wonder if anybody around here has got a television set. The monkeys, brought to you by Kellogg. Tonight's Monkeys Color Cast commentary is brought to you by the Red Maracas Emporium. Sure, we sell other instruments, but for some reason, our red maracas seem to get the most attention. Ask Boris for a deal on our $6 maracas, now with Front Street Parking, or you can use the parking in the rear. Just exit through the heart. Hello, and welcome back to the Monkey's Color Cast Commentary, and on this episode, we'll be talking about episode number 15, Too Many Girls, a.k.a. Davey and Fern. And as always, I'm joined by Monkey Magic author melanie mitchell melanie welcome hello how you doing i am well thanks how are you it's good i'm good i'm good and it's always good to talk to you mm-hmm. 
And uh, sitting in for the absent uh, Jeff Hewlett, we have Sarah Clark. Welcome, Sarah. Hey, everybody. Sarah, thanks again for, for sitting in with us while Jeff was out and about monkeying around. I like being the first runner-up. You know, if, if one of you can't fulfill your duties, then I jump in. <laughs> Put me in, Coach. I'm ready to play. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Melanie, we had some questions left from our Dance Monkey Dance Commentary. Yes, there there were three, All right. and I'm always very happy to do the research in the hiatus between color cast commentaries. Um, the first question was, what is $64,000 worth in 2016 dollars? And um, I did some research, and depending on whether you're counting it from 1966 or 1967, it's roughly $530,000. Wow, that's more a... than... yeah. A little bit more than half a million, which means, do you want to be, or what's that? Do you want to be a millionaire? <laughs> yes, who wants to be a millionaire? Uh, who wants to be a millionaire? That's the name of that that show. Um, actually, had a bigger prize than the sixty-four thousand dollars question. <laughs> uh, the second question that Jeff asked was about a particular piece of decor in the monkey's kitchen. Um, it looks like a sign. I think it's actually a piece of art, but it's six-sided, like a hexagonal size. Um, it's blue. It has a picture of a beer stein on it. I have no idea what it is. Mm -hmm. I think it's just something they found at a flea market somewhere and slapped mm -hmm. on the wall. But if you keep your eyes open during this episode, um, Too Many Girls, you will see it in this episode as well. It's in the kitchen. Ah, excellent. Um, the final question was, um, did they use the same courtroom set for Dance Monkey Dance that they used in The Devil and Peter Tork? Um, not even close. Um, I compared all three of the fantasy courtrooms used in The Monkeys. The other one was in a coffin too frequent, and none of them bear even the slightest resemblance to the others. Okay, okay. Well, uh, thank you for doing that research. I know uh, that we here at uh, the headquarters um of zilch uh appreciate it and i know the the listeners appreciate it as well so that <laughs> that hard work that you do doesn't go unnoticed well thank you very much mm -hmm. all right so looking ahead we are now uh, going to be talking about as we said at the top of the show episode number 15 which is kind of a i guess uh an important number i mean we've we've this is the 15th color cast commentary, which is a pretty impressive number. And I guess the mm -hmm. next big milestone will be 20. So uh, congrats to us for that. Um, and this is another episode that's got uh, two different names. Do you have any, any, any insight there, um, Melanie? Well, there is my first question for next time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I, forgot, I forgot to check. I'm pretty sure that Too Many Girls is the official title. Mm hmm um, I don't have a script for it, but I'll check the uh, copyright office and see how it's copyrighted. All right. And get back to you next time. <laughs> All right. Excellent. So this episode was written by Dave Evans, Gerald Gardner, and Dee Caruso. And this is all um, uh, writers that we've seen before. But, Melanie, you were pointing out earlier before we, we jumped on to record that this is the first time all three of those people have worked together. Correct. Um, Gerald Gardner and Dee Caruso, of course, are the uh, script supervisors um, and editors. And uh, Dave Evans did some solo uh, episodes on his own previously, but this is the first one they did together. They will also work together on I Was a Teenage Monster and Alias Mickey Dolenz. All right. Very, very good. And this episode was directed by James Frawley. Now, Sarah, do you want to talk a little bit about the cast? Absolutely. 
First off, and probably the most well-known person in the cast, is, of course, Mrs. Batterly, who was played by Rita Shaw. Um, in the early 50s, she played uh, several television shows, including Mr. Peepers, Johnny Jupiter, Regular. she was a regular on the Ann Southern Show, the Tab Hunter Show, and Oh, Those Bells. Uh, she was also well known as the family cook in Mary Poppins. That's probably where, that's certainly where I always recognized her from. And the housekeeper of the haunted cottage in The Ghost and Mrs. Muir. Um, she, uh, also, uh, Fern Batterly, her daughter, was played by Kelly Jean Peters. Uh, the most interesting credit on her IMD page was that she played Gloria in the original All in the Family pilot. I'm going to have to go look that up later. Yeah, very, very interesting. And um, this episode aired on December 19th, 1966. And uh, according to your notes, Melanie, there were no uh, song substitutions in the 1967 repeat. Actually, there was no repeat at all. This was one of the episodes that did not get repeated during 1967. Wow, Um, okay, so of course there'd be no song substitution. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's also the only song they've got is I'm a Believer, and since that's a performance with their mouths moving the entire time, they couldn't have switched into a different song. Yes, yes, and (laughs) I I guess we'll talk about that in the body of the commentary track, Mm -hmm. about uh, how unique uh, that might be. Um, So so are you guys ready to, to go? believe I am. All right, so we will start our color cast commentary for Too Many Girls, a.k.a. Davy and Fern, in three, two, one. All right, this is a unique moment in the history of the series because that's the first time we see the monkeys actually playing one of their hits on camera. They're actually performing that for a few seconds anyway, and a little bit later, Davy will come back in with his tambourine and his maracas right in, in pitch with what they were doing and it sounded pretty good yeah yeah and there's valerie carries okay i was pretty sure that was val stumbling her way out of the apartment there he goes (laughs) with four maracas (laughs) and the tambourine (laughs) i love it hey what guys you gonna sing (laughs) (laughs) this is one of the best cold openings in the entire series Mm -hmm. yeah it's a fantastic scene and one thing people will probably notice right away is how washed out the colors are. Um, maybe by the time this color cast commentary airs, people will be watching it on their Blu-rays and the colors will be restored. But the DVDs have no green in them. The color green has been completely disappeared. Ah. The, color, the color blue is almost gone. Yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah. And I, I'll tell you, not to get on a whole side discussion about the Blu-ray series, but uh, John Hughes recently, um, I guess, uh, dropped... <laughs> a, a complete remastered episode and um, my goodness did it look beautiful mm-hmm. oh, yeah yeah. why did Mickey think to look in the refrigerator <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a normal hiding spot oh yeah <laughs> looks like a very uncomfortable hiding spot actually <laughs> so there's a plague of girls not something we see in any mm-hmm. other episode no but it does seem to be an ongoing problem because they were, they said it was the there third time again. today. <laughs> and one of the best lines in the whole series, I myself am deeply jealous. <laughs> there it is. Yeah, I actually picked that up as like a personal catchphrase and forgot where I got it from, like back in the 80s. And then it took me watching the show again in the 90s when the VHS box came up. It's like, 
oh, that's why I've been saying that for the last 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I recently saw a, a, a trivia quiz, and one of the questions was, you know, who said that line? And Mickey said it in the, in the uh, opening scene, but Peter will say it later. So they both did. Yep. Now, something had, else. Oh, go ahead. Just I had forgotten that Mickey had said it first. Yeah. Um, later on, we're going to see that there is a scene in this episode that is um, censored. And we are watching the censored version. So if you are wa listening while watching your Blu-ray, set it for the censored, not the uncensored version. Or we yeah. will have different lengths. Maybe one of these days we'll loop back into the uncensored. Who knows? Yeah, that'd be nice. Especially since Fern is really quite lovely. <laughs> yeah. So here we are on the Columbia Ranch, um, making pretending to be Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I got to say, Mrs. Batterley's come a long way since she was a cook in Mary Poppins. But, I, you know, I guess rising that far in the world, that's where the determination comes from. Yeah. Do you think she actually has a tea room or is this just a front for her very elaborate scheme? Oh, poor Fern. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think she's actually being rather abusive towards that poor girl. I feel sorry. Free yeah. tea. <laughs> yeah. She's given the tea away, so what yeah. exactly is her business model? <laughs> <laughs> I've seen a, a, a meme somebody did of Mrs. Batterley and Fern together compared to the characters from The Little Mermaid. Oh. <laughs> oh, my Mrs. Lord. Mrs. Batterley as that evil octopus woman. Yeah. Yep. I can't think of the character's name, but it really is kind of scary, <laughs> the similarities. <laughs> That's great. Poor Fern. She's so scared. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> Do you think she really wants to break into show business, or is she I just? I want to get into to... that later. Yeah. yeah. This is a cute. This the timing in the scene. Mm-hmm. Is fun. But uh, it's a it's a very elaborate ruse to yeah. get Davy to help her. You know, they could have just asked. <laughs> yeah. Ah. Oh, and I want to note: a raconteur is a person who tells anecdotes in a skillful and amusing way. Oh my God, uh, I'll go, yeah, I'll go with that. And this has been Sarah's vocabulary corner. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so, well, Peter's coming down with a twenty-four hour virus. So they say. Uh huh. And there's Fern peppering his jacket. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Fortunately, he was wearing a jacket that day. Yeah, and fortunately, Mickey didn't want his uh, tea leaves redder. They would have been one uh, one trick short. Ah, true See? that. Yeah. And one of the things about this episode that sort of irritates me at one level is that throughout it, Davy insists he's not going to leave the group. Yeah. Mm -hmm. At every turn, he ends up, up, down, up, down, up, down. I love this bit. <laughs> yeah, that's a good physical comedy there. But throughout the, the episode, Davy insists he's not going to leave the group, and yet they don't trust him. They, they would sooner trust Mrs. Batterley's tea leave reading, which is kind of sad. It is. Yeah. It, it kind of speaks to the insecurity that they all feel. Right. And knock on wood. It's a cute little sight gag here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, she cackles so well. Yes. Mm-hmm. 
Yes, mother. Yes, mother. <laughs> so, somewhere along the line, Ferns went out there with a great big nail. Yep. Now, I wonder if Goodyear paid or did not pay for that product placement. <laughs> it's, it's amazing, Sarah, how often you see uh, – products scattered throughout shows all the way up through the 80s before, yeah. before I think product placement really took off as a as a way for companies to make money or realize that they could make money. Well, clearly well, I think it was E.T. that did it, yeah. yeah. They didn't have a tire inflation pump as their sponsor because uh, mm-hmm. Mike just blew that tire up with his own breath. <laughs> Quite a remarkable skill, that is. <laughs> And there's Davy insisting, yeah, no, I'm not going to leave the group. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and here's poor Fern. Whatever you say, Mother. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I'm a little ahead of the episode. It's okay. Okay. I love their apartment. I just, I. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, just so many little sight gags. I cannot wait for the yeah. Blu ray because I'm going to be like. Pausing and going through frame by frame <laughs> on all the stuff in the background. Davey makes a nice chair, don't you think? Yes, I- I'm impressed. I loved how as soon as he had the cover on him, he put his arms up to make the arms mm-hmm. of the chair. And here's our Girl Scout. That uh, box of cookies looks like a box of cigarettes, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think I'd you get pause- a lot less cookies now. Yeah. <laughs> But he didn't actually say anything and it got blooped out, so. Yeah. His lips aren't moving. <laughs> and now their costumes have changed. I think there may have been a, a, a scene deleted here because they, mm. they jumped from one scene in the pad to another scene in the pad instantly, but all of their costumes have changed. I totally so, did not catch that. Must See, be this is why we need you around. Yeah. <laughs> it's another girl. Yep. <laughs> um, Peter? Yeah. <laughs> Wrong guy. It's amazing how cooperative everyone's being, though. <laughs> I mean, if Davey didn't want to go up the stairs, there's no way you could really push him up. Now, this is one of those things where if you're not really observant, you might not realize that that's Fern. The, the disguise is so complete. Yeah. And later on, we'll see her. She'll, be ha- she'll have long, long hair. So... It's they. She's quite a chameleon. I love the costume bit here, where they're all wearing these old-fashioned costumes, and then as soon as the flash goes off, boom, they're back in their regular clothes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Little monkey magic there. Now Peter grabs the camera and throws it out the door. <laughs> okay. Once again, we're leaning up against the door in exhaustion. Yep. I do like the unbuttoned shirt on Mike there, though. Yeah. Hey, Davey, there's a back door. Actually, there's two back doors. You don't have to. Yeah. Now, this television show that Davey's about to be subjected to is called The Iron Horse. Oh. It was produced by Screen Gems, just like The Monkees was. Ah. But it was on ABC Monday nights at 7.30. So this show was on opposite The Monkees. Mm. So pe- people oh, man. watching the monkeys would not be watching the Iron Horse. They might even recognize the Iron Horse for what it was. I don't know. But I thought it was interesting that he's watching another network's show 
that's actually yeah. on opposite theirs. Actually brings up some very interesting metaphysical questions, come to think of it. <laughs> like, is the monkeys a TV show in the Iron Horse universe? Exactly. <laughs> Although they probably didn't have TV yet, right? That would be a problem, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, now, what is this white shirt and hat? <laughs> yeah, there had to have been a deleted scene. It also felt like there was a potential for... Uh, a romp here where, uh, you know, Davy's on his way dragging the chair. Well, possibly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is it, is it really, um, is this a, a rare instance where we don't really have a, a true romp in an episode? Uh, could be. Yeah. I mean, I noticed it. Um, I, I, and I also felt it, you know, yeah. It, it, yeah. it felt like something that was missing in the episode. I think the closest we come is all of the shenanigans at the amateur hour later on, <laughs> mm-hmm. but that's not a romp, really. It's yeah. All, it's all narrative. So here's Davy dragging the chair into the tea room. Um, and uh, a moment ago, we saw another person wearing an identical outfit to Davy's. <laughs> With the same hair. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that was David Price, Davy's stand-in. Uh. Mm-hmm. A fair bit taller. Now we're in the censored version of the scene, which is shorter than the uncensored version. Um, they used only close-ups and blurred out the bikini. But you mm-hmm. can see that Fern has long hair. By the way, she is standing on a platform. You yeah. can't see the platform, of course, uh-huh. because of the censoring. That's why she's so tall. In a moment, she and Davy will be the same height, because mm-hmm. she'll step down from the platform. Well, now that we've seen both the censored and and we've gotten glimpses of the uncensored, which do we think is like more provocative, for lack of a better word? Oh, the the uncensored scene, I mean, that is one really skimpy bikini she's wearing. That's true. I I don't know. Just the whole, the blur leaving things to the imagination and all that. Uh, What do you think, Craig? I see Sarah's point there where the... The fact that you can't see what's being censored uh, does possibly lead the imagination to fill in some blanks that might not be there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know that moment when she comes out on that platform and you can see her all the way from her crown of her head to the high heels that she's wearing. Uh, it's quite spectacular. You, you've got a fair point there, certainly. And uh, certainly the scene makes more sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the censored version, because they could only use close-ups, they had to take out some of the, the context of the scene. Right. Look, looking at looking at shows from the era, though, it, does it seem incredibly out of line with what we might have seen on, like, say, a Star Trek or yeah. or even Batman with Catwoman? Well, Catwoman never wore a skimpy bikini. No, but I mean, her, her body's yeah. pretty... They didn't leave much. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not an expert on the standards of the era. Look, watch how long that chain is all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think he gets, uh, Davey gets some strength there. Yeah, well. No. He still seems more in lust than in love, though. I'm sorry. At this point, I think it's more just a declaration of independence. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he's saying, look... I'm in a group, but I'm going to help this woman because she needs to be helped. He's not leaving the band. Right. They're overreacting, I think. Now, then mm. we have Mr. Hack, which is a takeoff of Ted Mack and his original Amateur Hour, which is a, 
a show that debuted on radio back in 1934. Right. It was on TV from 1948 to 1960. And then actually had a couple of revivals even after that. Mm-hmm. So people would have known when she said Mr. Hack, who she was referring to. And all right. of a sudden, boom, we're at the show being taped. Remember that Davy didn't say this was happening today. So we right. missed a couple of days during which presumably Davy and Fern practiced their number and the other guys figured out what they're going to do. Right. Very abrupt. Mm-hmm. And now give it up for Ryan Seacrest's grandfather. <laughs> <laughs> so how's David, uh, how's um, Peter is a magician. I yes. love it. I, I love <laughs> he does it. this good. I, I, I almost feel like maybe we're getting a glimpse of what his, Little shows were like back in the Greenwich Village days. Mm-hmm. By the way, despite the cooing, that's not a live dove. It's never I, moves. Yeah. <laughs> and but I love Peter's he, chin stubble here. Oh, and the way he looks into the bag. Like, oh, I'm so sorry. Moving <laughs> <laughs> on. Yeah, he gets yeah. over it pretty quick. Yeah. <laughs> but there is that moment of horror and guilt before he recovers his stage persona mm-hmm. <laughs> so I love the setup for this gag yeah. yeah well clearly he knows something but <laughs> not everything <laughs> he's more upset about the milk than he is over the dove <laughs> now here comes what I consider to be 40 of the funniest seconds in television oh my goodness oh, yeah. the, the very fact that Mike would use a song that he wrote in such a comic way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it is absolutely genius the way he performs this. <laughs> the nerves, the wink, it's no, hard the to eyes fake. going back and forth. It's really hard to fake. <laughs> and then in the bridge where he just goes, <laughs> uh, don't get me, don't get me, don't get me, don't get me. <laughs> <laughs> This guy would have had a great solo career either way. <laughs> oh, God, yes. This is so funny. <laughs> and, I mean, I th- this song was not known yet. I mean, this is before mm-hmm. Linda Ronstadt and the Stone Ponies. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it would have just been 40 seconds of nonsense to the viewer in 1966 without ever knowing that it was a real mm-hmm. song that had value in itself. Right. So, you know, God bless Mr. Nesmith for allowing them to do that, allowing Mm -hmm. him to do that with his song. Well, I wonder if he got, like, songwriter credit slash royalties for this episode. That's a good question. It's it's not credited in the, but that doesn't mean that he doesn't deserve to get paid for the use of it. Um, Still, he must have pitched it, you know, he must have said, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm sure the script just said a song or a country song. Yeah. So they're putting rocks in Davy's pockets and mm-hmm. placing his cane with a flexible cane. Now, I realize they had to come up with these acts on short notice, but you almost wonder if they deserved their goal better by giving good performances. <laughs> I'm just saying. But that's, I mean, they're the monkeys. <laughs> well, yes, I know. But I think the end of the episode really shows that the deck, uh, the deck was stacked against them either way. Fair point, fair point. You know, that Davy's uh, biggest talent, at least in, uh, according to the, the viewers of this 
amateur hour uh, was just the fact that he was Davy. Mm. Well, I've got more to say about that, too. Well, so, Mr. Hack is not impressed with no. Moxley Mendoza. <laughs> and then here we have the real sabotage. <laughs> not sure what that was. Some sort of throat spray something, yeah. But Davy does a really good job with, you know, the oh, yeah. that make it clear what's happened, that he's not going to be able to sing. So now we get to see Fern and Davy. Or is it Davy and Fern? Fern and Davy. There we go. And this this song is called Undecided. Okay. And it was uh, record, first recorded in 1939 by Ella Fitzgerald. Oh, wow. Went, went, oh. To number, went to number six on the Billboard charts in 1951 hmm. by the Ames Brothers. I always learn new things <laughs> watching the show and doing these commentaries. Yeah, it might have been familiar to the viewing audience, at least some of the I, older I imagine it would have been, at least to the parents. And yeah. I just, I'm so confused as to whether or not Fern actually wanted to, like, either recruit Davy or to be famous, because she seemed really ambivalent before, but now she's, like, having a meltdown. Yeah. You almost wonder if it's um, the response to knowing that how displeased her mom is going to be. Ah, Stockholm Syndrome. Yes. Fair point. Here's a thought. Maybe she really, really wanted to succeed on the amateur hour, but she wanted to do it on her own. Ooh, that's a great that her, point. The fact that her mom insisted on having a partner... Yeah, I think you're on to something there. Yeah, well, here we have Straw Cab. Mm-hmm. And Straw Cab is a kind of silly product being sponsored, but the actual sponsor, one of the sponsors of Ted Mack's original Amateur Hour, was a laxative called Serotan. And right on the bottle of Serotan, it said, spell it backwards. <laughs> there you go. And if you spell Serotan backwards, it spells the word nature's. So that's what Scraw Cab is referencing. And I'm a believer. Yeah. Third of four consecutive appearances on the show, but this is the one that's a complete performance. Hmm. Notice that they're wearing, they're wearing their eight-colored shirts that they were not wearing in the scene right before this, and they were not wearing in the scene immediately after this. <laughs> It was filmed some other time and just dropped in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And were they booked for this amateur hour? He said Fern and Davy was the last yeah. contestant. Yeah, and then he said one more act. And yeah. <laughs> that's why I stand by my thing about them having not not should have performing badly. I don't know. Yeah. And all their gear was there, too. Yeah. <laughs> and they were feeling very confident because they brought the tambourine. <laughs> True. I kind of feel like that's something that Davey always sort of had nearby. Uh, you might be on to something. Well, it was either they had all of their gear with them and the costumes as well, or they magicked it all up mm-hmm. just in time yeah. for the final moments of the amateur hour. This is true. If in doubt, monkey magic. There you go. I really like this performance. I, I, I think the, the guys all do a great job here. You can tell that they're really getting much better at yeah. at pretending to do what they're actually supposedly doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, Peter's really playing I'm a believer on that keyboard. And, mm-hmm. and Mickey doesn't adjust his microphone too many times. Uh, 
<laughs> and clearly, you know, Mike's playing that riff, or sorry, that lick on the on the uh, mm-hmm. guitar. It really does feel very natural. One of their better um, standalone performances, I think. Mm-hmm. But then we started off the episode with a, a real standalone performance, so. Yeah, we're definitely getting to the point where they're starting to gel as a real-world band. Yep. Now, this is before they ever appeared on stage. Um, they're still uh, a month or so away from uh, their first uh, performance in Hawaii. Actually, right. more than that, because this was filmed in September. So they're mm-hmm. still more than two months away from their first performance. But clearly, they were rehearsing together because they yeah. were able to do that little bit of step and stone. Yeah, at this point, the show was out, and they knew it was big enough that they'd be touring. So, And now the costumes have switched back. Mm-hmm. And Davey seems to be sorry for what he did, and I don't think he needs to be sorry for what he did because he didn't do anything wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he did tell him the whole way that he wasn't leaving. Yeah. <laughs> and now it's time to announce the winner. Oh. And, of course, everyone assumes that it's going to be the monkeys, including the monkeys themselves. Mm-hmm. And Fern is still crying. <laughs> well, and see, this is where I stand by what I was saying. Everybody turned off their TV sets after Fern and Davey, because at that point it had been like, Four terrible acts in succession. Oh. So they didn't call in. Yeah. Oh, I'm Sarah saying. explains it all. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Would I... you have kept watching after that? I, I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. That is a great point, Sarah. Well, it also feeds into the whole idea that the date that the the monkeys are never successful. They yes. never win. Well, yes, but status quo is gone, yeah. of course. Mm-hmm. So. All right, yep. so here we are at the end of the episode, and it's time to pick our most valuable monkey. And I'm going to start here just because I want to explain how tough of a decision this one was for me. And I think that if, out of all the episodes that we've done, that this might have been the most difficult choice for me when it came to determining uh, my, bo- my, my most valuable monkey. Um, but I'm going to go with uh, Mike Nesmith here just for the amateur hour performance, which I think is just um, so amusing and also so hard to do. So uh, mm-hmm. that's why Mike gets my vote. But um, this really was a, a, a tough episode to choose. Uh, would you agree, Melanie? Well, you stole my thunder because that was exactly the point I was going to make. Mm-hmm. Um, not only the way he performed the song, but the fact that he used his own song to do it. Um, it it's absolute genius, and I stand by what I said before, 40 of the funniest seconds on television. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, Sarah. Ugh, you took it all. Three for three. <laughs> Mike is my most valuable monkey, mostly for the different drum sequence. But, uh, you know, he does a good job of rallying the troops as his want as the leader of the group. And, you know, even if maybe we don't agree with their, you know, rationale, I mean, they they, they did a remarkably good job of keeping him chained up under the circumstances. Yes. <laughs> Actually, they did a very poor job keeping him chained up, but that's... <laughs> well, they didn't know that he was going to have the strength of thousands, you know. Yeah, or yeah. drag so, the yeah. chair through the streets. Exactly. They didn't count on him dragging that chair halfway across L.A. <laughs> all right, so all three of us have, have chosen, uh, chosen uh, Michael um, as our most valuable monkey. And 
uh, as always, you can choose your MVM, your most valuable monkey for this episode and any previous episode over on the Zilch Facebook page. So if you haven't done it already for a past episode and you want to get your two cents in for this episode, please head on over and do that. Melanie, any final thoughts before we sign off? Uh, no, I've had a wonderful time. This was a hoot. I can't wait to see the uh, the um, Blu-ray version with the colors restored. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, same here, same here. And Sarah? Agreed. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to see this uh, again in the, uh, in the Blu-ray format. And this was an enjoyable. It's uh, always fun kind of coming back. This was an episode that maybe I didn't watch very much when I was just watching the series on my own. So it's always kind of fun to come back to these episodes that I'm a little less familiar with and just kind of get to enjoy them relatively fresh. So Right on, right on. And we will be back next time with Son of a Gypsy. And until then... I am Craig Cohen with Melanie Mitchell and Sarah Clark. We'll see you next time. Thank you for tuning in to tonight's Monkey's Color Cast. I'm your announcer, Ghosty Timmers. Now, back to the show. Well, thank you to everybody involved on that very cool Color Cast commentary. And we'd like to encourage you to check out Craig and Jeff doing the same kind of thing over at their show, the Tricorder Transmissions, and where they discuss the original classic Star Trek, the original series. They are in the mid-run of the Gold Key comics from Star Trek, and will soon be getting into Star Trek, the animated series, which came out in the 70s, so check that out. So that's pretty cool. Don't forget to come over to the Facebook page and cast your vote for Most Valuable Monkey. You, You mentioned someone casting their vote for the most valuable monkey and it's we, we encourage everyone to do that because it's it's kind of fun to see which monkey you thought was the most valuable monkey for that particular episode but we got a particular thrill over at the zilch facebook page this last week when Derek lewis the dancing smoothie from from what episode melanie dance monkey dance from dance monkeys dance <laughs> He he actually came on the Facebook page and answered questions about back in the day and, and talked to us all. And not only that, but he actually voted for his most valuable monkey in Dance Monkey's Dance. And he picked Peter Tork, correct? He did, but what was really charming about it was that he explained his, his vote. Um, you know, those of us who watch the episodes get to choose what our criteria is, whether mm-hmm. it's you know, something the character did or a particularly funny line or the overall theme of the episode or who worked the hardest on the episode. But for Derek, he was talking about the monkeys as the people that he worked with. And he mentioned that that Peter was very funny and charming. And and so that was why he cast his vote for Peter. He said that he didn't see very much of Davey and Mickey was really manic. Mike was very quiet. I think I'm getting that right. Um, I'm doing this from memory. But uh, it was not the characters it was the co-workers yeah. that he was voting for so that was pretty cool so you never know who's going to pop in over at the zilch facebook page <laughs> would it be cool if julie newmar voted for most valuable monkey for monkeys get out more dirt that would be awesome <laughs> herself that would be yeah. well yeah <laughs> well she couldn't choose right right she right. couldn't That's right. choose back then so. literally couldn't choose so we want to thank you for listening to this episode of zilch and you can find us on Twitter, at ZilchCast. And Mark, where can people find Monkey's Live Almanac? Stop over and visit at monkeyslivealmanac.com. 
And where can they find you on Twitter? At Monkey's Almanac. And Melanie, you uh, have the your book, Monkey Magic, is still on sale until the wonderful Blu-ray set comes out from the Monkeys. You want to tell folks about that? I think you just did, but oh. I will say that it's marked down $2 off the normal price until the day the Blu-ray arrives in my mailbox. It is an excellent companion piece to read along as you watch the show. It's 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 lovely, and I, I, I personally have both the print version and the Kindle edition, so I can check it out on the fly where, wherever I'm at. So it's awesome. What are you doing on the fly? I'll never it tell. Do- doesn't that hurt the fly? No, it's very comfortable. I fly them around the house sometimes. I'm going right in the gutter. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> And, and wouldn't is, that be something? Yeah, Jeff, is there anything you'd like to promote? No, I spend all my money on monkeys, merchandise, and music. I got nothing. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, we want to thank you for listening to Zilch. Join us on the Zilch Facebook page. We will see you on the next episode of Zilch. Take some time out to monkey around. And remember, you are in the year of the monkeys. The year of the monkeys. And that's our show. Zilch is an online nonprofit monkeys audio fanzine made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to the monkeys or any of their members, past or present. We are not affiliated with Rhino or Ray Bird. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes and buy it. If you enjoyed the show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying always take some time to monkey around. Ken, can you mute your microphone? Who, me? (laughs) What was that? Now Ken has a recording of me saying, Ken, can you mute your microphone? Let's see if you can find a way to use that. I like your hair. (laughs) It looks good. (laughs) Yeah, he's in his room.